Well, hey everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. And in this episode of our podcast, we are starting into a brand new series of sermons called Confessions of a Pastor. On July 15th, 2007, my ministerial career began when I started pastoring my very first church. So about this time every year, I like to spend a little bit of time reflecting on lessons that I've learned along the way. So that's exactly what we're going to be doing during this sermon series. We're going to be reflecting on some of the things that I've learned after 13 years in ministry. And in this episode, we're actually going to be reflecting on one of the very first things I learned just about five weeks onto the job. So let's get right into this episode sermon. Is it just me or is it hard to believe that it's already July? You know, when July comes, it means that the year is more than halfway over. And just based on how 2020 has been going so far, it's probably not a bad thing. But when July comes, it also means that summer is well underway. So when July comes, it means that family vacations are just around the corner for a lot of different people. But for most of us, the first thing that we think of when July comes is Independence Day. And that's because it was on July 2nd, 1776, that the Second Continental Congress voted to approve a resolution of independence from Great Britain. Within two days, Congress had agreed on a final version of that Declaration of Independence. And with a few pin strokes by John Hancock, who was the president of the Second Continental Congress, the United States of America was born. Now, it's been 244 years since our founding fathers declared our nation's independence. And over the course of the last couple of weeks, plenty of people have been finding plenty of ways to celebrate this anniversary. But if I'm being completely honest right now, there's another anniversary that I've spent a lot more time thinking about since the month of July began. Now, in the grand scheme of things, this anniversary is nowhere near as important as Independence Day and the birth of our nation. But it's a day that changed my life forever. It was July 15, 2007, and it was the day that I officially became a pastor. And since I've spent so much time thinking about this anniversary over the last couple of weeks, I thought that I'd let you take a look behind the curtain of what it means to be a pastor. So today, we're starting into a new series of sermons that I'm calling Confessions of a Pastor. And I want to start out today with a confession that comes from the very beginning of my time in ministry. And even though my time in ministry began 13 years ago, I can still remember what it was like to walk into the pulpit and to preach to my new church for the very first time. Now that morning I preached a sermon about Hannah and I noted the parallels between her wait to become a mother and my wait to become a minister. And as her story turns out, Hannah's wait was well rewarded by the birth of her son Samuel, who would become the final judge of Israel and the prophet who would anoint Israel's first two kings. And my hope that morning was that my weight would be rewarded as well by years of meaningful ministry. And the last 13 years have given me countless opportunities to do meaningful ministry. It's happened inside of sanctuaries as God has used my words to speak to hundreds of different people. It's happened in my office while counseling people that have been going through hard times. It's happened beside hospital beds with folks who were suffering different illnesses and in funeral homes after unspeakable loss. It's happened around dinner tables and at committee meetings. It's happened at church camps and trips with senior adults. And it continues to happen online today. 
It's been an unbelievable journey up to this point. But if there's one thing that I can say with full certainty looking back over 13 years of ministry, if there's one confession I can make, it's that I had no clue what I was doing when I started out in ministry. I had no clue what I was doing when I started out in ministry. Now don't get me wrong here. I was as prepared as I could have possibly been to enter into the ministry. I had my bachelor's degree in religion from Georgetown College. I was two years into earning my MDiv from seminary, and I had preached dozens of sermons at different churches all across the state, and had even served six months as an interim pastor. But as I walked into that church that morning and made my way to the pastor's chair up on stage, and I looked out over that congregation for the first time as their pastor, I started to feel like I had no business being up on that stage. But fortunately for me, I had learned a lesson a few years before that would carry me through that morning. And I learned this particular lesson back in 2004 on the day of my ordination into ministry. Now after that service concluded, my parents threw a big party in my honor, complete with cake and ice cream and even presents. And there was one present in particular that caught my attention that day. It was from the church that I was working in at the time. And they had all pitched in and they had bought me a real life briefcase. Now I was 22 years old at the time. So in my mind there were exactly two possible things that a briefcase could be used for. You could either fill it with $100 bills and take it with you to some shady parking lot to pay off a ransom to the mob, or you could use it to hold the secret codes for America's nuclear weapons. Well, when I opened up my briefcase, it wasn't stuffed with $100 bills, unfortunately, and there weren't nuclear codes inside of it. So I had no idea what to do with that briefcase. But when I saw it, I couldn't help but think of that old expression. If it looks like a duck, and walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then it must be a duck. So I knew that just by holding that briefcase, it would make me look the part of a professional minister. So I went home and I started filling that briefcase with anything that looked even remotely churchy. I put a leather-bound Bible inside of it, and I even put a hymnal inside that I had to buy for one of my classes in college. I also found a few manila folders, so I labeled them with things like sermon illustrations or future sermon series and stuffed them full of paper. And I did all of that because I knew that if I just had the right things inside of my briefcase, that if anybody ever opened it up and looked inside, I would look the part of a minister. So that's exactly what I decided to do my first Sunday morning as the pastor of a church. I decided to look the part of a minister. So even though I had no clue what I was doing and I was more than a little bit nervous, I straightened my tie, I buttoned my jacket, and I strode into that pulpit like I was John Calipari walking onto a basketball court. And then I preached that sermon like I was Billy Graham and Billy Sunday all rolled into one. When the service came to an end, I took my place at the sanctuary door and I shook hands and I made small talk like thousands of other ministers all across the country that morning were doing. And when I went home that afternoon, I felt like I had fooled everyone there into believing that I was a real-life, honest-to-goodness pastor, including myself. But then Monday morning rolled around, and I got into my car, and I headed for my church office for the very first time. And after pulling into the church parking lot, I spent the next half hour or so unloading boxes from my car. And with those boxes stacked up against the wall in my new office, I plopped down at my desk, and I spent most of the morning twirling around in my desk chair, 
trying to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. And even after all that twirling, I still had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. So I decided that I should at least look the part of the pastor in my office. So I got to work hanging up my college diploma and my ordination certificate because there is nothing more reassuring to someone popping into their pastor's office than seeing that their minister has actually been credentialed by someone or some official institution. Then I realized that nothing could look more pastoral than having an office that was lined with books like the ones behind me right now. So I started unpacking my boxes. I pulled out all of the books that I had managed to collect throughout college and in seminary. I dusted off devotional books that I hadn't looked at since I was in high school. And I proudly displayed every single Bible that I had ever owned, including at least half a dozen of those cheap little New Testaments that the Gideons had passed out at my college campus. All totaled, I think I had enough books that day to fill up like three shelves in my office. But I spent enough time that I somehow managed to organize those books well enough to make it look like my office was full. Then I even spent a little bit of time picking out a few select books like my Greek New Testament and another book called the Church Administration Handbook that I sat down on the corner of my desk to make it look like I was an expert in my field. And that's how the first five weeks of my ministry went. I woke up on Sunday mornings and I dressed like a pastor. I stood behind the pulpit and then I preached like a pastor. Throughout the week, I sat down at my desk in my office and I busily worked like a real pastor. But five weeks into ministry, everything changed. It was a Tuesday morning and I hadn't even started to get ready to go into work yet when the phone in my house rang. It was a deacon at the church who called to tell me that a longtime member of the congregation had just passed away. This longtime member had been bedridden in a nursing home for the last few years, and I had only had the chance to meet him the week before. But as soon as I heard the news, my heart sank. So I showered and I got dressed as quickly as I possibly could, and then I headed straight over to the nursing home where I met this church member's widow in the hallway outside of his room. With the tears still welling up in her eyes, I did the pastorally thing and I offered my condolences to her. After a few minutes, I offered to follow her back to her home so that we could sit down and talk about her late husband. As soon as I sat in her living room, she started sharing stories with me about a man that she had spent 50 years of her life with. And as I sat in an overstuffed chair in the corner of her living room, I felt the same way I had felt five weeks earlier when I sat down in the pastor's chair for the very first time. I felt like I didn't belong in that place. So just being there beside her as she dealt with real emotions and real grief, I knew that she needed a real pastor. But I was 25 years old and had only been the pastor for five weeks. And here I was sitting across the living room from a woman who had just lost her husband of 50 years. And at the time, my future wife and I were still planning out our wedding. So there was no way that I could even begin to understand what she was going through. Yet I was somehow supposed to bring comfort to a woman who had experienced a loss that I couldn't even imagine. That morning... I felt like she needed someone who had been down this road before to sit with her. That morning, I felt like she needed someone who could understand her loss. 
That morning, I felt like she needed someone who could remind her of the promises of God. That morning, I felt like she needed her pastor with her. And then I remembered that I was her pastor. And at that moment, I could no longer just look the part of a pastor. This was a woman who was dealing with a real loss and dealing with real grief. She had no use for someone who was just playing church. So later that day when our conversation had come to an end and I headed back over to my home, as I was thinking about everything that had happened that day and over the last five weeks of my ministerial career, I finally had to admit why I had been working so hard to look the part of a pastor. I had been working so hard to try to look like a pastor because deep down inside I felt unworthy of God's call for my life. In my mind, I wasn't worthy of being a pastor. So all I could do was look like one. It was my own insecurities. Because in my mind, I knew every single thing about me that would keep me from being a good pastor. Sure, I could put on a suit and tie, but deep down I knew that I'd always be more comfortable in jeans and a t-shirt. And yes, I had fancy degrees that I could hang up on my wall, but I knew that I earned that degree without ever really trying my hardest or learning all that I could have. And sure, the shelves in my office were starting to line up and fill up with books, but I knew I hadn't read half of what was behind me. And sure, I had been ordained into ministry and called to pastor church, but I knew I was a 25-year-old kid who knew next to nothing about ministering to a church that was filled with people who were about the age of my grandparents. But even with all of these doubts and insecurities flowing in my mind, it didn't take long for a story to pop into my mind that helped me keep everything in perspective. It's a story that our small groups read just a couple of weeks ago here at Melbourne Heights as we've continued to work through the Bible together. And it comes from the book of 1 Samuel. Now the book of 1 Samuel is found in the Old Testament and it's part of a larger collection that tells the story of Israel's monarchy. So in the book of 1 Samuel, you'll find the story of Israel asking God to give them a king. And you'll find the story of how a man named Saul became the first king of Israel. But those aren't the stories that came to my mind when I was struggling with doubt and insecurity about being a minister. No, the story that came to my mind comes a little bit later on in the book of 1 Samuel. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 16. And in this story, God is choosing the person who will replace Saul as Israel's king. So, let's take a look at what it says. This is what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll start reading in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to grieve over Saul? I've rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and get going. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, because I have found my next king among his sons. How can I do that? Samuel asked. When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say, I have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will make clear to you what you should do. You will anoint for me the person that I point out to you. Samuel did what the Lord instructed. When he came to Bethlehem, the city elders came to meet him. They were shaking with fear. Do you come in peace, they asked? Yes, Samuel answered. 
I've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Now make yourselves holy, then come with me to the sacrifice. Samuel made Jesse and his sons holy and invited them to the sacrifice as well. Okay, so up to this point in the story, we've been told that Saul is on his way out as Israel's king. And God has told us that, that Samuel is going to go and he's going to find Saul's replacement. But as we read the next couple of verses, I want you to pay attention to the way that Samuel wants to pick Saul's successor versus the way that God wants to pick. So let's pick back up in verse 6. Here's what it says. When they arrived, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, that must be the Lord's anointed right in front. So in this one little verse, Samuel is presented with the first of Jesse's sons, the first possible replacement for Saul. And Samuel takes one look at him and he thinks, this has to be the guy. I personally like to believe that as soon as Samuel saw Eliab that he thought, this guy won't just look good sitting on the throne. He's going to look so good when we start printing his face on our money that other nations are going to be jealous of us. But that's just what Samuel thought of Eliab. It's not what God thought. So as we continue reading in verse 7, we hear, But the Lord said to Samuel, Have no regard for his appearance or stature, because I haven't selected him. God doesn't look at things like humans do. Humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. Now let me read that for you again. God doesn't look at things like humans do. Humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. So the story continues. Next, Jesse called for Abinadab, who presented himself to Samuel. But he said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. So Jesse presented Shema, but Samuel said, no, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. Jesse presented seven of his sons to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't picked any of these. Then Samuel asked Jesse, Is that all of your boys? They're still the youngest one, Jesse answered, but he's out keeping the sheep. Send for him, Samuel told Jesse, because we can't proceed until he gets here. So Jesse sent and brought him in. He was reddish brown, had beautiful eyes, and was good looking. The Lord said, that's the one. Go, anoint him. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him right there in front of his brothers. The Lord's spirit came over David from that point forward. Thirteen years ago, when I thought about this story, I realized that for my first five weeks of minister ministry, I was trying to be Eliam. He was Jesse's oldest son, and he was the first one that Samuel saw. And with just one look, Samuel was convinced that Eliab must have been the next king of Israel. He just looked the part. But then God tells Samuel that God doesn't look at things like humans do. Humans see only what's visible with the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. And God saw into David's heart, and God knew that he was the one that was supposed to be Israel's next king. And God saw into my heart, too. He saw my passion for the church and my love for his people. And God knew that I was supposed to be a pastor in his church. 
And for the first time, I started to feel worthy of my calling. Not because of the suits that I had hanging up in my closet. Not because of degrees that I could put up in the wall on my office. Not because of the books that I had sitting on my shelf. And not because of anything that I, was, I had done. I was worthy just because God had chosen me. Maybe you felt the same way too. Maybe you felt like you were unworthy. Maybe you felt unworthy of a job that you've had. Maybe you felt unworthy of volunteering in a certain role inside of the church. Maybe you felt unworthy of something even bigger, like God's love or his grace or forgiveness. Maybe you felt unworthy of God's call for your life. But if there's one thing that I can tell you this morning, it's this. You are worthy. You are worthy, and it's not because of who you are or because of what you've done. You are worthy because of who God is and because of what God has done. God calls all of us. God has given all of us a purpose in our lives. We just have to trust that God is calling us to do the right thing. Because here's the truth. It doesn't matter if you look like a duck if you quack like a duck, and if you walk like a duck. If God calls you to be a duck, that's exactly what you're supposed to be. God called me to be a minister. God's called you to do something else. Whether it's the job that you have, whether it's a volunteer opportunity that you participate in, God has called you to do something. So trust that God got it right. Trust that God has made you worthy of what he wants you to be, Trust that God has made you worthy of what he has called you to do and follow God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the time that we've had together so far today and this message that we've heard. God, I'm thankful for this story of Samuel and the anointing of David because it reminds us that David was the last one that Samuel would have picked. Samuel would have chosen any of the other sons of Jesse before him based solely on what they looked like. But it wasn't about their appearances and looking the part of the king God. What mattered was what was inside. What mattered was David's heart for you. David went on to become the greatest king in Israel's history. So we know that you made the right choice like you always do, God. And that means that you've made the right choice with whatever you have called us to do. So allow us to feel worthy of the calling that you have placed in our lives. Let us not be obsessed with looking the part. Let us be obsessed with doing what you have called us to do. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that today's episode has helped you realize that you are worthy of whatever it is that God is calling you to do and whoever it is that God is calling you to be. Now, in our next episode, we're going to continue talking about things that I've learned over the course of my 13 years in ministry. So I hope that you'll come back and join us next Sunday at noon when our next episode drops. And as always, if you subscribe to our podcast, that'll be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. I also want to invite you to come and worship with us online at Melbourne Heights anytime that you want. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time on our church's website. That's mhbclouisville.com slash live. Hope that you guys have have a great week this week, and I will see you back here next Sunday for another sermon podcast.